And so we're going to be looking today at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You might want to turn there. And at the end, I always like to take something that would be a good application. So this comes from Decision Magazine. This is the magazine of the Billy Graham Organization. And the April issue, I've got uh, two very good articles there, one by Skip Heisig, who's spoken for us many times here as well, as another one by Lee Strobel, who's also spoken for us. And those are individuals that we will get to in just a few minutes. So again, this breaks down pretty easily into two different sections, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 11, and then we'll work our way from verses 12 to 34. Now, I'd remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I have already received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed." Quite a bit to cover there, and we'll do our best to cover it in a timely fashion. First of all, to help us understand that when we talk about the gospel, oftentimes people say, what do you mean by the gospel? Well, one aspect of the gospel is the resurrection. Jeremiah Johnston has been on my program many times. Matter of fact, he actually bought a table at the Zig Ziglar event, and I'm going to be sitting at his table with him. Actually, has said that if you go back and look at the early preaching of the church and even the early church fathers, it was very resurrection-centric. In other words, the gospel back then was the resurrection. Today, we sometimes talk about the resurrection, but we also talk about how Christ can give you an abundant life, steps to peace with God, the four spiritual laws. But here, it was just really the story was the resurrection. And here, Paul drives that home. 1 Corinthians 15, if there is one gospel, it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the message of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. That's the gospel. And again, these first 11 verses are really here to show us the centrality and the historical nature of the resurrection. And so he wants them to understand that it was a historical fact. By the way, in just a minute, I'm going to get a piece from Skip Heisig, which talks about, again, how this was historical. It's not just some fairy tale. He wants us to know that ultimately the gospel, the foundation of every issue that we talk about here in class, is that in the resurrection is actually central. And he writes then in verse 2 that it's vain to believe. And we're going to look at starting verse 12 and following how, again, if the resurrection didn't take place, how we are really believing in something that is not true. But the good news is that it is true. Because not believing the resurrection is not believing the gospel. You know, run in every once in a while that people say, look, I believe that Jesus was a good man, but I don't really believe that he raised from the dead. There are liberal theologians that I've heard say, I believe in the resurrection, 
but I believe that Jesus still was in the tomb. You know, so you've got this kind of discontinuity that exists there. And he's saying there's no use to your faith if Christ's resurrection did not take place. There's no Christianity. There's no eternal hope. And so it is obviously the key to hope. And that's one of the themes that, again, is in some of the material I'm going to pull out in just a few minutes. Now, he also then uses this phraseology, according to the scriptures. And that is an attempt to do two things. First of all, it shows that the death and resurrection was God's message, and also it was God's plan. The first point is the message of the Old Testament. He's really trying to help these individuals in Corinth and other believers that would read this letter understand that this goes all the way back to the Old Testament. If there's anything the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, knew, it was the Old Testament. Studied under Gamaliel, he was Jewish, he certainly understand that. And so he may not have had one passage in the Old Testament in mind, but many of them. We in the past have talked about Messianic prophecy and all the rest, but it's certainly the overarching history of that. So it certainly was God's message, but also it's God's plan. And it takes us all the way back to the fall in Genesis 3. Verse 15, and so this was the plan to eventually have a Savior to deal with the sins of the world. And so we see that as well. Now, can I convene a a New Testament Greek class for just a moment here? I won't get too technical, but uh, this is, again, something else that some of the commentaries reminded me of. And that is Paul uses two different tenses. By the way, if my English teacher were here right now, she would be laughing out loud. This guy is teaching about English? Oh, my goodness. But anyway, there is what's called the aorist test, which we really don't have that tense in English, but we have it in the Greek language, and that's where it took place. But we have a second one, which we have in English, which is called the perfect tense. Well, again, I'll just give you a quote that you don't want to take it from me, since I didn't do that well in English class. There was one time in an English class, they actually read one of my papers in front of the class to make fun of me. So, I mean, that shows you a little bit about uh, my experience in high school. But nevertheless, but this commentator says this, the aorist test is the default test, a tense that is used most often, and it's what happened in the past. But Paul changes the Greek and puts it in the perfect tense, meaning it happened in the past and it's still happening today. So again, the resurrection is not just a historical event, Paul is saying, but the resurrection is meaningful to you today. And here on Palm Sunday, that's why we're covering it there. So it has massive implication for the past and the present and the future, because its impact has no end. There are believers today, maybe some that even walked forward or those who joined the church, that are being impacted by the resurrection. Next week, I hope you'll be praying for this because Pastor is going to give quite a powerful message at Easter. I know it's, I think the 930 Jonathan is actually teaching. He told me that. And this is going to be an opportunity to really call some people. We know there are a lot of people. They only come to church twice a year. When is that? Christmas and Easter. And so there's an opportunity for some people that will be in maybe the last row just listening, but hear the, again, the truth of the resurrection that will change their lives. Change lives in the past, changing lives in the present. I believe it will change lives in the future. So, again, a little bit of Greek 101, but I thought it would be helpful to understand that. While I'm talking about Greek, there's something else. At one point here, he talks about all that Christ appeared to, and then he uses this phrase which is very interesting, one who was untimely born. 
Well, that's actually just one word, interestingly enough. And for those of us that like to study some of these things, when a word only appears once in the New Testament, it's called hapax legomena. So now you've got a word that you can talk to your friends about. You can really impress your friends. When this word only shows up once in the New Testament, you can't do a scriptural comparison to where that word show up other places in the context. So when we see that word that today we translate one untimely born, when you see it in other parts of Greek, it means stillborn. But I don't think that's what he means. What he, I think, means is surprisingly born. And I think we all have heard stories of women who knew they were pregnant, but all of a sudden the birth came really quickly. Are you familiar with that? Uh, this week, just to check it out, um, there was a wonderful story. It's hilarious. From Vacaville, California, where this woman is pregnant, and all of a sudden she says, I'm going to give birth. So they start getting everything together, and her mother puts stuff in the car, and she's like ready to reach for the handle of the car. She says, I'm not going to make it. I am not going to make it. So they just lay her out on the lawn. And some people are coming by so you can see the cell phone uh, pictures and everything. They call the EMTs and she's given birth right there in the lawn. And uh, by this time, the EMT is they're right, dusting off dirt and mud from her knees and grass from the amniotic fluid of the uh, child and everything. And so anyway, can you imagine being on YouTube in which you just all of a sudden you have this emergency birth? But that's kind of what you might call surprisingly born, right? Uh, and we've all heard those stories. You know, you've heard the old apocryphal story, too, of the woman that couldn't make it to the hospital. I don't think it's really true, but it's always a great story people tell. And she just didn't make it to the hospital, and she had to give birth on the lawn outside of the hospital. And after she gives birth, she's just crying her eyes out, and they're saying, what's wrong? She says, oh, I'm just so embarrassed. And they say, well, ma'am, it's okay. It's just fine. You know, we had somebody two years ago that gave birth on this lawn. She says, I know it was me. <laughs> Pretty sure it's just an apocryphal story, but it's such a great story, I thought I'd repeat it. But here again, untimely born, surprisingly born. Now, why does he say that? Well, he explains why. Because I was the persecutor of the church. If you would talk to someone as Stephen was being stoned to death, and to say to those disciples, that man, Saul of Tarsus, will be the greatest defender of the church they would say, there is no way. And yet, of course, we know the story, indeed, because of him as well. So it's, again, the use to highlight God's grace and power. And I thought it was just very interesting that uh, this concept here, it's going, hapax legomena, only word shows once in the New Testament, but I think what it is implying is a surprising birth. Let's get on. I thought I'd get everybody laughing a little bit here as well. Because now he talks about the persecution of the church was part of his conversion. He has a very ugly past. And you can see the humility that runs through many of the epistles as he's writing these. Because even though he's gotten beyond it, he still realizes what he has done and what he did to actually nearly kill Christianity in its cradle. And now, of course, he is responsible for it so well. And saying again that Christ has brought a corpse to life by power. And so as a result, this is, I think, very good. And so then in verse 10, he talks about the fact that the grace shown to him was not in vain, 
because, again, he was transformed by the saving power of the gospel and continues to testify to the resurrection power because he believes that Christ has risen, he knows that he is, and it still had an impact in his life. So, again, there's a lot more we can dig out of that, but I'm going to keep it moving and look at the rest of chapter 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because he testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Kind of confusing, but I'll get to that in just a minute. Verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. But if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all the people most to be pitied. But now the good news. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom uh, to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. By the way, lately I've been getting some questions for our people wanting to have me talk about end times prophecy. And after what Pastor Graham said today, I think we'll do that pretty soon in the class as well. But again, verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to destroy, be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjected under him, that God may be all in all. Finally, otherwise, what do people mean by saying baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up, the phrase today from the pastor, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Pretty strong words, which again parallel very much what Pastor Graham was preaching on today. But first of all, it is looking at the idea that if Christ is raised, then those who argue against the resurrection have to be wrong. And it turns out that during that time, you had those who were influenced by Hellenistic Greek thought, the Gnostics and some of the Stoics, even the Epicureans, believed that the resurrection would not happen. And so he is really, at this point, attacking this idea that was part of Greek thought that the soul is eternal, 
but the body is material and mortal. And so they didn't believe in this idea of the resurrection. And he wants to show them that, first of all, God values the physical world and that there will be a resurrection. And the argument's pretty simple. If Christ did not raise from the grave, well, then, okay, maybe you could argue against the resurrection. But on the other hand, if he did rise from the grave, then it would be logical to assume that believers would rise from the grave, that they would be resurrected as well. And so he says in verse 17 that without the resurrection, of course, our faith is meaningless and hopeless. And ultimately, we're still in bondage to sin. But the resurrection, of course, is related to the work on the cross that he did. And so to deny the resurrection is to deny the efficacy and the effectiveness of the cross. He takes us back, of course, to Adam's sin, reminding us that there are effects to the sin of Adam. Back to Genesis chapter 3. Just as in Adam all die to sin, so in Christ all, if they share in his life, they will indeed have eternal life. Once Christ comes and resurrects his bride, his church, God will rule and reign for eternity. We'll look at that maybe in future weeks in terms of what that really means in terms of the new kingdom. Death and sin will be done away with. This is the hope of the Christian. And ultimately, our hope hinges on this whole idea of the resurrection of Christ. Finally, he says, we actually have to say that if this is not true, well, then why would we put ourselves into danger? Why would he wrestle with beasts in Ephesus? Why would he nearly be killed? Uh, Why would he ultimately go to his death? Why would all these various disciples all go to their uh, death? Virtually all the disciples, with the exception maybe of John, died martyrs' deaths. And some even suggest maybe he did as well, but nothing else died in exile in Patmos. Why would they go through all of that if the resurrection is not true? If there's no resurrection, well then, you know, just enjoy self-pleasure, gratify everything, do everything today, because tomorrow you might end. And so, in some respects, that uh, is the way we would end. But I always like to cover one other issue. Verse 29. You ever had anybody knock at your door and they have white shirts and little name tags? That is, of course, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And one of the things that the Mormon church does is they baptize people for the dead. Now, where in the world does that idea come from? Taking one verse in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 29, completely out of context. And so I thought for just a minute, if you have an ESV study Bible, which I highly recommend, though the head of that is a man by the name of Wayne Grudem, who I've interviewed on the program many times before, they do a commentary on verse 29. And so since some of you have had Mormons come to your door, maybe you have Mormon friends, Suzanne and I used to have Mormon neighbors and others, I thought I would just help you answer that question. This is how some of the brightest evangelical scholars have dealt with verse 29. You with me? Okay, I'm just going to read it. It says, Some interpreters through the centuries have thought this referred to vicarious baptism on behalf of deceased people, probably those who had believed in Christ but had not been baptized before they died. So it is possible, I don't think this is a logical conclusion, but it's possible that there may have been some who actually were believers, but they never been baptized, so there was this practice among maybe early Christian church members to say, well, I'll baptize for those in the dead. Maybe. 
but most people say that interpretation is uncertain. But whatever it is, Paul is certainly not saying that in the church we could baptize for the dead. Uh, we're going to, Friday night, give a chance for any of you that haven't been baptized or anybody you know that has not been baptized to get a chance to be baptized. But we don't baptize people in abstention for those that died before. And that's because that's not what the Bible teaches. Baptism for the dead, of course, as it says, is an important part of Mormonism, but the Bible gives no support for the idea that anyone could be saved apart from personal faith in Christ. And they give John 3.18, John 14.6, and other passages as well. The commentary goes on to say other interpreters argue that the dead means that Paul might be talking about the bodies of living Christians, but now they're dead to sin and they become alive to Christ. And so maybe that's what he's talking about. And in a sense, baptize on the behalf of their dead bodies. But that may be an idea. And in this case, he's argued that even so, the baptism of perishing bodies is useless because guess what? We get a new resurrection body. So whatever it is, it was a fallacious teaching that may have existed for a time. There's nothing in verse 29 that suggests that we should do that. And yet, again, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has taken this one verse completely, I think, out of context and have an entire structure of baptizing people for the dead. And if you like to do genealogy, as my father liked to do and Suzanne's mother liked to do, it's a great source for genealogy because they're looking for all the people that actually lived before. But I think this commentary by the ESV Study Bible gives a pretty good answer to it. But let's finish off real quickly here as well, because here, ultimately, he says, if you're in a stupor, snap out of it. Pastor told us to wake up. Again, wake up and think rightly. Christ is raised. Believers should as well. Believe rightly. Don't be deceived. He writes this in verse 33. Our faith directly connects to our lifestyle. He doesn't want us to be misinformed. If anything else, he realizes that some of these misplaced views aren't isolated. They bleed into the church. So it's time to have proper biblical doctrine and to believe the right things, to wake up and to go into the world and to praise the Lord for what he has done in your life and to share this good news with everyone else. With that as background, let me pull just briefly from this. First of all, I just love Decision Magazine. It is very significant because it is the publication of Billy Graham organization. And, you know, we were talking about all these 50 anniversaries, you know, uh, point of view, just uh, 50 years ago, starting in 1972. Uh, in the next couple of weeks, Suzanne and I are going to talk a little bit more about something else, because in 1972 was what was called Expo 72 at the Cotton Bowl, and Suzanne, a young lady from Oregon, flew all the way down there, it was one of those individuals at the Cotton Bowl, and as she flew out, looked out the plane and said, well, I guess I'll never be in Dallas again, but nevertheless, that's the case. And this uh, June will be Together 22, which is the 50th anniversary of that. But there's another 50th anniversary, and that is the Billy Graham organization. Because in 1971, pretty soon it'll be 51, but in 1971 at the Oakland Coliseum, my father actually volunteered to be a counselor at the Billy Graham Crusade. Well, he goes in and um, is interviewed by this man who actually, I found out later, was a member of a Southern Baptist church in the Bay Area. Not many Southern Baptist churches there, by the way. And I, here's my father tell his story. And at the end, he said, Mr. Anderson, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but 
I don't think you're a Christian. (laughs) And, of course, my father was volunteering to be a counselor. Now, I think my father might have been a Christian, but you got to understand, you know, he grew up in the Methodist church. He probably, knowing my dad, probably talked about the good Lord. He always talked about the good Lord, never used the word God. The good Lord probably talked about having always been a Christian and all that. And the Southern Baptist was looking for, you know, a moment of decision, a baptism, nothing like that. And at the time, we were going to, before all of us became Christians, probably the most liberal Methodist church in Berkeley, literally across the street, from Save the Great Gate right there in Berkeley, uh, Trinity Methodist Church. So I can see why he probably said, you know, I'm not sure you're a Christian. So I think they did a pray with me right there, although I think he was already Christian and he was a counselor in the Oakland Coliseum. And the reason I bring that up is there was somebody else at the Oakland Coliseum who became a Christian 50 years ago, and that's Kim Black, right? Yes, he became a Christian in Oakland Coliseum. So while my dad was witnessing to, I know this one young man with the steps to peace with God, somewhere in that crowd was this young lady, Kim, who became a Christian there as well. So we owe just an incredible debt of gratitude, and that's all happened 50 years ago. Let's get into this real quickly, because I thought, first of all, I want to share a little bit from Skip Heisick. And uh, that is, uh, if you find yourself later on, would like to read this. They do have this article online. You can go to Decision Magazine and read it in its entirety. They don't have all the articles, but this one is. And I think he does a very good job of reminding us of the importance of the resurrection. Because he starts out by talking about the fact that we have lots of evidence that some of the top fears in America today, one of those is the fear of death, of course. And he gives us some Bible verses and the rest, but then spends some time really talking about how the evidence for the resurrection is undeniable. And the first point he makes is, is that, first of all, scholars agreed that the tomb of Jesus was empty shortly after his death. And he talks about the fact that there was a huge stone that was rolled against the entrance. There were guards that were set there. He talks about some of the theories, you know, the so-called swoon theory, that Jesus actually just fainted on the cross. Uh, and then eventually woke up and uh, then appeared to his disciples as Lord of life. If any of you ever seen um, the passion of the Christ, wasn't that just the most gruesome thing? I mean, can you believe that somebody after that could have survived? And, of course, he talks about some others, the graveyard theory and all these other things. And so, first of all, I think we can all agree, even from a secular historical point of view, that those Eyewitnesses at the time did indeed agree that the tomb was empty. In the Gospel of Matthew, we even have the fact that the Jews had to come up with something because they knew the tomb was empty, so they said the disciples stole the body. Of course, that doesn't make sense either. Second of all, it points out that historical records of the life of Christ revealed that he predicted his death and resurrection years before they occurred. You can read through any of the Gospels, but certainly the Gospel of Matthew is good in that regard, which there are various predictions that you see him making. And Matthew also talking about all these prophecies in the Old Testament were literally fulfilled in the life of Christ. Then he points out, third, there were hundreds of eyewitnesses. Did we just not read this today in 1 Corinthians 15? You had 500 witnesses, and those were just men that all saw the risen Christ. 
Well, that kind of sets aside the idea that that was some kind of hallucination. You know, right now you might be listening to me and you might be hallucinating. You might be dreaming that you're in Hawaii right now and thinking about Maui or something. But not everybody's having the same hallucination, I guarantee you. That's an individual thing, and that doesn't make any sense as well. And again, 500 witnesses in a court of law, that'd be enough to convict somebody, wouldn't it? And so again, the point's well taken. And then he goes in for a very long series of presentations on how these many eyewitnesses came to believe Jesus was the Messiah. And he talks about, of course, uh, all sorts of preaching. Peter, for example, standing um, basically on the southern steps of the temple, preaching to a hostile audience. And then that day, thousands become Christians. Um, and, of course, we've read today about the Apostle Paul. So it is a wonderful uh, essay. And the good news is, even if you don't have a subscription to Decision Magazine, you could go to Decision Magazine and read it in its entirety. I bear you bad news. This one, unfortunately, uh, is not on the website. But already we've talked about this a little bit. And that is... Uh, Lee Strobel, because I thought that would be a good one as well to finally finish off and to talk about, again, he has this new book out called The Case for Heaven. I highly commend it to you. And he talks about this in a number of ways. So I picked out just five points. I think we have enough time to cover each one. And the first is this, uh, the question that came from the Billy Graham organization. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, King Solomon writes that God has set eternity in the human heart as an atheist-turned-Christian, describe your understanding of that verse. Lee Strobel says, well, the Hebrew is a bit obscure, but it generally is thought to mean that God has implanted a desire in us to live forever. We see this in atheists who seek to make a name for themselves so they'll be remembered after they die. It's what prompts some people to construct impressive buildings, paint masterpieces, or even to commit notorious crimes. He says, when I was an atheist, I hoped I would leave a mark on the world through my achievement in journalism. Of course, that's a rather fruitless quest, since in the end we'll still be dead and, frankly, pretty much forgotten. But this idea of Ecclesiastes, that there is indeed uh, eternal set in the heart of individuals, is a great answer to our so-called atheist friends. Because they would argue that basically, if you didn't have all you religious people teaching, then people would basically be atheists. The problem they have with that is, is there's about two billion people on this planet that call themselves Christians. They may not all be saved. There's at least another billion Muslims that also believe in God. There's another another billion or so that are either Hindu or Buddhist that believe in that. There's another billion or so that are animists. We are religious beyond measure, even in the 21st century. And so, in some respects, there is this, this sense that there's more to life than life. And so I think that's what Ecclesiastes 3.11 talks about. Then he takes on one of the controversial issues as well, because in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each record that the Sadducees attempt to cast doubt on what? The resurrection, because they ask um, uh, whose wife would be the widow in the resurrection. Remember when, you know, dies, another, you know, that kind of stuff. And that's in Luke 20, verse 35. And it simply has Jesus saying that the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. So he wants to know, in this case, what about this idea of marriage in heaven? 
And he says, well, theologians debate this issue. Many believe that marriage as we know it won't exist in heaven. However, others look at the precise words of Jesus and include that he was saying there would be no new marriages or weddings in heaven. He says that we will be like angels. In fact, Luke's account elaborates by quoting Jesus as saying that people in heaven can no longer die, but they are like angels. As one theologian explained to me, he says, quote, a major reason for marriage is procreation to continue one's lineage. But in heaven, people are eternal. So no one will need to procreate in order to continue the family line. There won't be a need for new marriages in heaven. So what does that mean? He says, as someone whose marriage of 50 years has been wonderful and fulfilling, I would certainly look forward to continuing in a marriage relationship with Leslie forever in the world to come. But if there turns out to be no marriage in heaven, that won't diminish our joy. As another theologian said, God takes nothing away from us in the eternal state except to replace it or enhance it with something better. So for those of you that said, well, won't be married, Suzanne and I won't be married in heaven, he's not so sure that isn't necessarily the case. Isn't that interesting? So he goes into that in much more detail in his book, but I thought it was kind of fencing, and most people have never seen it before. But let's get to a couple others. The Case for Heaven, you quote the late science fiction author Isaac Asimov. And Isaac Asimov said this. He was an atheist, of course. Whatever the tortures of hell, I think the boredom of heaven would be even worse. What has your research about heaven led you to believe it to be like? I have run into a lot of people, including my son-in-law, by the way, who oftentimes said, you know, are we just going to be bored in heaven? Well, here's the answer from Lee Strobel. It will be anything but boring. The God who brought the vast galaxies into existence and designed the intricacies of animals and plants is creative enough to provide an eternal experience for his followers that will be supremely joyful, fulfilling, adventurous, and exciting. Is that good to hear? He says in 1 Corinthians 2.9, where he says, What no eye has seen... What no ear has heard, what no human being has conceived, the things that God has, what? Prepared for those whom he loves. So it's this idea, if you um, are excited about this world, it only gets better when we get to heaven. That's pretty good. A couple more, real quickly. What about the linchpin? We sort of talked about that already, but I thought I'd mention it. He talks about the fact that even as a skeptic, I recognize that Jesus directly and directly made transcendent, messianic, and divine claims about himself. And that's in John 10:30. For instance, he claimed that he and the Father were the same in essence. His audience understood that he was claiming to be God. But so what? Anyone could claim to be God, even me. But if Jesus claimed to be divine, and if he died and then rose from the dead on the third day, well, that's pretty good evidence. He's telling the truth. That's why the apostle said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, which we just selected, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. In short, the resurrection of Jesus is the ball game. I love that. And then finally, one of the questions he has is the whole issue of reincarnation. And again, he answers that in some detail. But he says reincarnation um, actually feeds into this idea that you can work hard in this lifetime to help the next one. And I think we can all ultimately understand that, first of all, Hebrews 9.17 says, after death comes what? 
the judgment. And so I think we can understand that. And again, this idea of working out your karma, he goes into some detail. Matter of fact, his whole chapter in the book on that as well. But my goal, if nothing else, is to recognize that as we come to this time of Easter, uh, it might be good to read a book or two on the subject. Certainly would be good to get back into 1 Corinthians 15 as we've done. But if again, since I have a class full of readers here, if you're saying, well, okay, I'd like to know a little bit more about that. One of the best books on the resurrection comes from Gary Habermas. Suzanne and I have spent time with him and his wife. Uh, the Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, he and Michael Lacona. Michael Lacona teaches at Houston Baptist, um, as well as um, individual travels. Gary Habernas has been at Liberty for many years. One of the best books, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. And if you find yourself maybe interacting with a Christian or a non-Christian about the resurrection, that's kind of the key book. But Lee Strobel, since I've been promoting him so far today, uh, his book, The Case for Easter, the journalist investigates the evidence for the resurrection, or, of course, his book, The Case for Christ, and, of course, one that I just mentioned a minute ago, The Case for Heaven. So, again, as we come to this time of the resurrection, this is a time for us to rejoice in what we have, but really pray that next week you could bring some people to church that they would hear about the resurrection and they also would have eternal life. Parker?